You need a little bit of nasty, don't you? They're the little battles you need to win if Munster wanted to win this game. He lives and breathes line out. How do they pick themselves up from this? The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neil Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Kent goes short out to the right-hand side. Ball sent in very, very deep. Could be a chance here for Ireland. Falls to Denise O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan on the right-hand side. Pulls it back to the edge of the area. Shot comes in. Takes a deflection and it's into the back of the net. And the Republic of Ireland lead in Sweden. And it is Captain Fantastic, Katie McCabe, who has scored it. What a moment. For the girls in green, they lead Sweden by a goal to nil. And it is Katie McCabe from the edge of the area. The deflected shot, a huge, huge goal for Vera Powell's side just before halftime. Sweden nil, Republic of Ireland won, Katie McCabe. Right, 7.31 this morning. We're reflecting on a one-all draw for the Republic of Ireland in Gothenburg and I'm delighted to say we can go to Gothenburg. Ashling O'Reilly and Julianne Russell are with us. Nathan's with us as well. Uh, Ashling, you've got a, an amazing... Okay, sorry, we haven't got Ashling. Nathan, we um, we were talking in the build-up to this game. We were very concerned about what was going to happen. We thought we were going to get hammered and then we didn't. It's one of those... There's like just a little bang of early big jack-off what's going on with the women's team at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is there's certainly a, a wave of momentum that's building behind this side and a, a confidence in this team that they can go and take on anybody. They're incredibly well organized, very assured of their positions and also brilliantly talented. Like, this is a team with players playing at a very high level. And you saw that last night, even though Sweden, 10 of their starting 11 are playing in Champions League teams. When Ireland got the ball to Denise O'Sullivan, when they got the ball to Katie Taylor, they were as good as anybody on that pitch. And they always did the right thing. Denise O'Sullivan, it's just a, such a shame Ireland couldn't get her into the game more often. She had three three times, really, she got in decent possession. Three times she was fouled. I absolutely clattered. They knew exactly how good Denise O'Sullivan was going to be. Yellow cards been thrown out. And to go away to Sweden, the first time in, what, 12 years, I think, since Sweden dropped points at home in a qualifier. They look at everybody as minnows. They are one of the countries who copped on to the benefits of women's football a long, long time ago, yeah. who get to every single World Cup, who will head to the European Championship with genuine aspirations of winning it. Uh, and they were put under pressure. Ireland, when they got in their half, created a lot. Yeah, Sweden dominated the ball, as you would expect. But this was a performance that, firstly, would go a long way to getting Ireland to a playoff. But the confidence that they should take from this, that they're heading in the right direction, is absolutely huge. The uh, Swedes are also banging on in the build-up about, so this is how you beat us because we're so strong and so good. We can tell you how to beat us and then you're not going to beat us. But then uh, it was 1-0 at halftime. It was 1-0 up until like the 70-whatever's minute. Um, at the same time, there was definitely a, a stereotypical, traditional one-all draw away from home, back to the wall, final few moments where we were conceding free kicks right in front of our own goal with literally the last kick of the game. And you're like, this is also a part of our footballing history where heartbreak occurs in the 97th minute of a 94-minute game. There's no greater Irish footballing tradition than a one-all draw away from home and a massive qualifier to just keep things rolling on and uh, leave the final day of, uh, of decision as far down the track as possible. 
But uh, this this was huge. Like this was from a team who have been in a you know tough place over the last couple of years, who really should have qualified for the European Championship. Who the heartbreak of that has lingered for a long time, and I'm sure will resurface this summer when all the other teams, many of whom Ireland are better of, are heading to the finals in England to get results like this after the setback at home against Slovakia. It's a massive, massive point gained and shows that against these sort of teams who they want to be playing at a World Cup, they have a way of setting up. They have a defence. I thought the defence at times last night were outstanding. Luis Quinn again with all that experience. The ball was like a magnet to her for most of that second half. It was interesting in the build-up to the game, Vera Power was having a go at UEFA for the lack of games that the Republic of Ireland have had. Um, I do wonder if, uh, you know, there's a proxy there where UEFA is actually the FAI and there's actually now an opportunity for the FAI to organise more games at whatever level for them. You know, maybe it's not full international level, maybe it's not a full capped game, uh, but actually just making sure that the unavailable group, as big an available group as possible, sometimes with your players who are playing abroad, depending on what the time of the year is, sometimes without those, but that there's like a, a, a widening of the pool of available talent who are being put through the rigours and tactical discipline of what it is to play for Ireland under Vera Pau. And that's what they had ahead of this game. They went to the Pinatar Cup. All of the reaction coming out of that from the players was it was Sweden, Sweden, Sweden. Every single one of the friendlies that they played was based around how they would set up tactically against Sweden. And also getting players more experienced. So Chloe Mustaki finally gets her Ireland debut in the Pinatar Cup and then comes on. First ever competitive start for Ireland last night and plays as well as she did. So you're right. More games is what Ireland need. And like Vera Pau has taken on very difficult friendlies. It meant that when Ireland were coming in to the first game against Sweden, that they'd been on a tough run. They got that friendly victory against Australia, but they'd been on a long run without a win, which was a very brave decision to make considering what had happened against Ukraine and how that must have done such damage, damage to that group of players. It, the easy and obvious thing would have been, actually, let's get a few winnable games. Let's try and move past Ukraine. But actually, Vera Pau, the one thing she has always consistent on is trying to get players a consistent level not all of them are playing Champions League football like Katie McCabe are playing at a really high level in America like Denise O'Sullivan so she needs as much exposure as possible for these players at international level in good quality friendlies and it does feel as though she is getting the backing like it's still only five years since Emma Byrne had to lead this team to the verge of strike it's it's not that long ago since this group were in a pretty dark place but they have a big squad. I thought it was quite noticeable that this was a one-off fixture, but she had a massive squad. I think there was 27, 28 players uh, in the squad at a time when you know there's always speculation around uh, even the men's squad and you know the 40-man 40, 40 squad of uh, Trapatoni's days is gone, that there is almost limits on the amount of players that you should be bringing in for financial reasons, how many you can get in the play and how many you want to pay for a hotel. So to be able to bring in 27, 28 players, have them for a good 10 days, like they've had a long training camp out in Abbottstown and have everybody in the exact same wavelength. They need much, much more of that. And I'd imagine during the summer when there is that one qualifier against Georgia, that Vera Powell will be looking at another opportunity with other teams who haven't qualified for the Euros to go and play three or four more games and yeah. just ramp up the number of caps. Because it was incredible last night watching Sweden. A lot of their players were in their 30s, but they had three players with over 150 caps. Yeah. And it makes a difference. It definitely makes a difference. Let's go to Gothenburg. Uh, Julianne Russell and Ashley O'Reilly are standing by. Ash, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, Jerry. How's it going? Your 3-1 prediction yesterday, I'm delighted to say it was completely wrong. <laughs> I'm delighted too. I'm absolutely delighted. We actually spoke to Annie, um, a little girl who was flown over for her seventh birthday, and she said a one-all draw. She actually said that yesterday to us when, we, when Julianne asked her. So 
yeah, she she was on the money. It was just incredible, uh, an unbelievable atmosphere, especially after the game. It was funny to see both teams really celebrating and and cheering and hugging each other, you know, because they they were both so delighted with the result. And yeah, it was just it was just magic for Ireland. You could really see what it meant to the girls um, and to Vera after the game. Julianne, put some context on it for us. Is this as good a performance as we've seen from Ireland? Look, I think the performance from a defensive wise, it was magnificent. Um, like they, for 90 minutes, they uh, were just so focused and really kept the game plan. Um, they like didn't make a step wrong, I suppose, then from an offensive or an offensive point of view. Um, obviously, like the attackers, they don't want to be defending all game. And like the likes of Heather Payne and Leanne Kernan up, up top, they want to be making runs and, and scoring goals so I think from, from an attacking point of view it wouldn't have been the best performance but definitely from a defensive point Can you see the the, um, the work that's being done on the, on the training ground can you see that paying off in the patterns of play and just the strength that they have at the moment? Yeah definitely like I think I suppose even from the, the set piece that came from the goal um, with the with the short pass up, um, from Katie to Megan Conley but I, that looks like from the training ground um, obviously Megan Conley has a great look at the ball and um, it started from that so um, I think the from a tactics point of view it, it was um, it worked really well and um, I think that got us the draw Actually, we we had talked about the fact that it's going to be a full house and the crowd and all that kind of stuff. But it, you, I mean, we could hear in the commentary there that it was uh, relatively quiet after Ireland scored. What was the atmosphere actually like? And it didn't. What, if any, impact did it have on our performance versus their performance? It was it was incredible. It really was. Um, you know, they had a lot of music and stuff playing beforehand. People were up uh, like on their feet dancing around before the game started. And even me and Julianne just spoke after the game, just and how it didn't really impact Ireland whatsoever. And that was something we had spoke about prior to the game. Like, will it have an effect on the girls? That there, you know, there's so many people there. It's mostly Sweden fans. You know, will will it have an effect on how they play? And it it, it didn't seem to. I don't know. Like, yeah, we thought it, it didn't. Really at all, um, which was which was amazing to see, you know. Um, but it was brilliant to have so many people in there. You know, over twelve thousand fans was was just incredible, wasn't it? It just ratchets up, uh, like the attention ratchets up, the sponsorship ratchets up, the coverage ratchets up, the pressure as a result of that ratchets up. But what what has happened as well, Julianne, is that the quality of the performance is getting better. That you're beginning to see uh, a more mature team, a more capable team. And I guess the, the other part of this is we don't actually know how good they could be just yet because they're not finished. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. It, it's a journey and it's like, as you can see from the results and the progress from the game to game is, is evident in the results. Um, like the, the girls are working so hard, um, like the likes of most of the players are, are professional. So like they're really kind of stepping up to where the level is at. Obviously Sweden, like, you could see they had so much, so much possession, and um, like their physicality, and just even like their patience on the ball. They are um, a, a level above us, but I think, like as I said, we're on that journey, so we just need to keep progressing and uh, keep going. All right, let's hear from uh, Megan Connolly in the aftermath in conversation with Ashley. Have a look. Defensively, how tough was it out there? I just asked Katie. It was a dog fight, and you fought to the very end. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you don't get a second to kind of take a deep breath. 
Um, they're constantly just relentless, putting the ball in, putting the ball in, playing it wide, switching it back. Like there's someone running on your shoulder, your other shoulder. So it's just a game of where we had to communicate, you know, for the whole 90 minutes. Um, again, everyone did that unbelievable. Same with Courtney. Courtney in the back kept us in it in a few times um, and just really kind of helped us in front of her. Um, but yeah, they were as I said they showed their quality for the goal but I think for us we, we gave it everything um, and deserved what we got uh, Nathan you might explain to us uh, what happens next in terms of the qualifying <laughs> this is a, another opportunity for you to dazzle us well, with you, your knowledge if you thought the Nations League was exciting if you thought the Nations League was exciting the uh, playoffs for the Women's World Cup Finals are incredibly convoluted and complicated so all the group winners qualify we know Sweden uh, they were celebrating last night because they have now qualified for the World Cup. All of the second place teams, the nine of them, go into a playoff, uh, the first of which will take place in October. So of those nine teams, three of them are going to be seeded, the top three teams. So these go on the amount of points you've accumulated during the group stage. It's still too early to figure out whether Ireland will be in the top three. If they win the remaining three games, they will have a decent opportunity and they definitely have an advantage in that Ireland are in a five-team group. For those in the six-team group, your matches against the Minnow, the six-team don't count. For actually Ireland's victories against Georgia, so the 11-0 and whatever they can do in Georgia will count for this, which is a big advantage. So if you're not in the top three, you play a semi-final against one of the other teams, and then the winners of those three matches will play the top three seeded teams. And here's where it gets complicated. Only two of those three winners will qualify automatically. So... Nine into two. The team that is third, and again, this all goes back to the points that you accumulate. So the more points you can get, so that point against Sweden, if you can win your final three matches, all of this continues to carry over. So of the three final playoff winners, the two with the top points total from the group stage qualify automatically for the World Cup. That is quite the The other team, the other team that are left over, they've got to go to Australia and New Zealand next February when 10 teams from around the world, from all the different confederations, will go to a final playoff, and there are three spots available at that. From how many teams? And again, 10. So they're divided into three sections. It is going to be seeded. I would expect there's a very good chance the Republic of Ireland, if they were to end up in that situation, would be one of the three seeded t- teams. But you have to go through a semi-final and then a final, depending on how the draw works out and seedings and all of that. And then three teams will come through from there. So potentially you could have three more matches in the group stage and you could have to play four playoff games to qualify for the World Cup. And what makes it particularly complicated is obviously you won't know when you're in all likelihood at different stages as to where you are in the seedings. The easiest thing is to be one of those top three teams. In fact, the easiest thing is to be one of the top two teams. And then, you know, if we qualify, if we win our two playoff games, we are in. Anything outside of that, and you're potentially in a situation where you're heading to Australia, New Zealand for a couple of weeks for what's essentially a, a warm-up tournament to get the final three places. So it, it, it's it's very difficult at the moment with the way the groups are going. Like the Netherlands, for example, at the moment are one of the second-place teams, but you know, you'd expect the Netherlands will go on and win their group, so then Iceland will drop down. Uh, but it's it's certainly not straightforward. And I know a lot of people are talking about the Finland game at home and that importance and should that be a game that they look at moving to the Aviva Stadium and look what was done with the Clásico in Spain and how Barcelona were able to market that match and sell it out and they've sold out their next match as well in the Champions League I think for the Finland game you played in Tala and you sell out Tala and then maybe for a playoff or a playoff final that's where you go all in and again 
I'm sort of undecided on that. Unless you can guarantee you can sell it out, why bother? Why not? Maybe maybe that's for down the track. Maybe that's for the next campaign. This one is about qualifying and giving yourself the best possible chance. And the players like Tala. They're used to Tala. Yeah, well, that, maybe having 7,500 and know it's going to sell out. Yeah, Julian, Julian, what do you make of that? Because this is definitely going to start becoming more of a topic of conversation about a move to the Aviva. Like listening to Katie McCabe talk about Tala and how well the performances are there and what the atmosphere is like. Um. I, I definitely see the benefit of having 25,000 kids at a game at the Aviva, but I also see the benefit of winning in Tala. So what's your take on it? Uh, personally, I think um, we should stick with Tala at the moment. Um, like That's been our, our home ground for the last couple of years. And um, I think, like as you mentioned, the players are, are used to that pitch, used to the stadium, the surroundings. Um, like... Obviously, it'd be amazing to, to play at the Viva, but I don't think it's the right time yet. Um, I think the, the game should be played in Tala and then um, uh, like potentially in, in the future, look at the Viva. But um, yeah, ta- Tala for me. Yeah, it's um, it's you know not like us to get carried away after a one-all draw away from home where we're like, let's sell out the Aviva. We haven't even qualified for the tournament just yet. No, no. Yeah. Like, that's the whole point of being a sports fan. We're allowed to get carried away, particularly yeah. this morning. Um, last one for you, Ash. Uh, were there many Ireland fans over? Those who did make the trip, you were um, none of them were too confident, apart from the seven-year-old you were talking about yesterday. Yeah. In, in the aftermath, were they hanging around? I guess you didn't get out of the stadium until quite late. Yeah, we were quite late getting out, but uh, we met them all beforehand. They, they were brilliant, weren't they? They, yeah, they all phenomenal. waited around the square um, in Gothenburg. It was actually pretty amazing. And we got a football out and we all kicked around for a little while. We did a keep you up your challenge. Julianne was pretty good. Um, then there was some Swedish that got involved as well. And, and you should have seen them. They're actually exceptional. There were some girls that rocked up and they didn't even put their handbags down and they just started playing football and like they literally were, were exceptional, weren't they? Yeah, no, it just showed like the culture of, of women's football in Sweden is massive. Mm. Like they were just kind of off the street, like still in their sunglasses. And yeah, just said past the ball and off they went. Yeah. <laughs> um, so all the Irish fans were in with them as well. And there was just a really great atmosphere. We met so many that come to all of the games and yeah they, they travel to the away games as well which is, is brilliant because it's not easy to do that and uh, there was a little girl there Kate as well uh, she was amazing she actually had trained with the Sweden team she was telling us all about that as well and um, she was from Drogheda I think it was and um, yeah so it was just great to, to get to meet them all all right good stuff well Jer, we should mention before you let them go Jer, we did take a major <laughs> risk sending Julianne over to cover this match Julianne was actually on standby for the squad <laughs> Luckily, nobody got injured or got COVID. <laughs> but uh, I mean, for us, but obviously for you, you were kind of. It I would know. have been one of the great stories. I know. <laughs> I know. I had the boots in my hand luggage just in case. Yeah, we were waiting for half time, weren't yeah. we? <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks a million for uh, for joining us uh, live from Gothenburg Airport, as everybody can hear in the background there. And my thanks to the cleaner for being a starring member of the uh, show this morning as well. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. And a reminder, of course, that all of our coverage of the Republic of Ireland versus Sweden is with thanks to Sky, proud partner of the women's national team, out believe together and we can go anywhere. Coverage is with thanks to Sky, proud partner of the women's national team. Um, Nathan, let's talk a little bit more about very briefly some of the other stuff that has uh, been going on. Um, the Kinhan story we're going to come back to a little bit later on. The front cover, if you've missed it, of the sun this morning is wanted and it's the three Kinahans and a wanted poster. Uh, and it turns out they're now wanted, of course, by the American government. Um, an in- incredible bombshell press conference yesterday. Bob Arum is going to be uh, on Newstalk Breakfast this morning at about five past eight. We'll play a clip of that 
in the next hour but he's basically saying he's cutting ties with, uh, with the Kinhens. We should go back to the Champions League though because uh, last night I think Thomas Tuchel even in defeat did his reputation no end of good. Despite the fact he's a Champions League winner there were some questions in the English media about this season and what's going on and the limp performance of the team in the first leg but a very different team selection from him last night. Brave in many respects completely rewarded and very unfortunate not to knock Real Madrid out in the Bernabeu. Oh, this is one of these great Champions League games that we just take for granted, that every Tuesday, Wednesday night of a knockout stage, you're going to get an absolute classic. And one of those that by the end of the game, you completely forget as to what had happened and who had scored at the start of the match. It feels like so long ago. Uh, Chelsea were brilliant. How they did not go through, they will be cursing themselves for that absolute lapse in the first leg where they put together the worst half an hour, 45 minutes that they've had under Thomas Tuchel and allowed Karen Benzema to come in, score a hat-trick and it felt like kill the tie. But they came out, as you say, with just this brilliant attitude. They were relentless, like the energy, the little bit of confidence maybe they picked up against Southampton at the weekend. And it was brave. Like Ruben Loftus-Cheek was not a player a lot of Chelsea fans might have expected to see start in a game of this magnitude. But... You know, the uh, physicality that he was able to bring, the energy he was able to bring. I thought Kovacic, who I'm never quite sure of as a player, was exceptional. Kante just ran the show. And then Timo Werner. She's Timo Werner. Maybe You felt that was maybe Timo Werner's moment to finally be the hero. Had the entire Real Madrid defence on their arses as he just shimmied his way through. Uh, but Madrid, it was too open. I think Chelsea were so all in, they just couldn't kill it then. They couldn't revert to actually... We just need to hold on to possession here. We just need to slow it right down. We need to be as dull as we possibly can. And then Luka Modric stepped up and John Giles tomorrow night is just going to be a 10 minutes soliloquy in honour of the great Luka Modric because that was one of the all-time passes. The more you watch it, the more you realise just how simple a finish it was then because of the genius of the spin that he was able to put on that ball at that time. So it's one of those that Chelsea, I don't think, lose any face at all going out at the moment to that Madrid side and I suspect that Manchester City if Manchester City can go through tonight are probably a little bit happier to be facing Real Madrid than they are to be facing Chelsea in a semi-final Because you think that they match up better against Real Madrid than they do against this Chelsea side and obviously there's there's, uh, ghosts from uh, very recent previous encounters uh, against Chelsea Yeah, I think they will feel that they can do what Chelsea did last night as well in terms of the energy and being able to outrun and outpass and outplay uh, Real Madrid. Now, that's not trying to do down Real Madrid, who Carlo Ancelotti, you've discussed, is somehow constantly getting the very best. But a midfield of Modric, Casemiro, Cruz, you can't write them off. You can't say that they're still not at a level because of what they did last night. But I think Manchester City's midfield will feel that they could really get at them. And if you can somehow keep Benzema quiet, which... Chelsea did for long periods last night, you would have City as strong favourites. But then you'd have City as favourites to beat pretty much anybody. And would you be at the same time shocked if Atletico Madrid pulled off one of their moments and Pep Guardiola's outrage and there's a bit of a scrap on the sideline and it's all kicking off at the end of this as City somehow go out in controversy against Atletico Madrid? No, the script is... We've seen that script like around Man City and around Pep... Uh, and around Atletico so it would not be a complete shock if, if that was to happen um, let's just tease out a little bit more about some of the decisions that he made the um, the Werner like Werner has become a figure of fun on this show because uh, Owen predicted that he was going to come good and actually you know what maybe he's right maybe maybe Werner's about to go on one of those streaks Oof. 
Timo Werner has been about to go on one of those streaks since day one. He's a very predictable player. Now, I say that having him, as I say, put the entire Real Madrid defence on his arse, as everyone expected him to take the shot, take the shot. But the type of chances that Chelsea create, like all great teams, are often quite similar. You always know when Timo Werner's going to strike, and it's why so often I think his shots are blocked or the keeper can make a comfortable save. And it must be just so ingrained in him, the lack of goals, the lack of confidence. He wasn't the hero last night in the end. He got a goal that'll be quickly forgotten about in the annals of Chelsea history. He won't forget and it, though. He won't. Look, but I guess... Are they, is we, we've had too many false dawns with Timo Werner. Well, it was a great show of faith, and it was, I'm sure, down to his energy levels as much as anything. Like, it's a right kick in the ass. Uh, at the same time, from Chelsea's point of view, for... Havertz. Uh, well, Havertz is there, but like Lukaku. And players like this who... Well, Lukaku's you know, aren't gone. getting the opportunity. If Tuchel stays, if the new owners and Tuchel agree on a shared vision for the future, then Lukaku's gone in the summer, right? Uh, probably it'll be a massive loss. You would expect like, they paid a hundred million quid. Well, Newcastle, been the biggest Come on down, Newcastle, of, biggest disappointment of the season. Uh, Pulisic is the one who you feel often comes in in the big games. Like they have so many options up front with Pulisic and Ziyech, and like all these top teams, they're doing a lot of rotation. Maybe they're doing too much rotation. Uh, that they have never been able to figure out what their best attacking force is. And if Timo Werner could get into the sort of form that got him the move in the first place, yeah, there's definitely a place for him in that. And maybe a new manager or maybe Thomas Tuchel tries to change things. He gets a different type of striker to lead the line and Thomas Tuchel can play just often. But you know, I don't think Thomas Tuchel at this stage is going to be the long, long-term answer for, for Chelsea. Like Mason Mount was exceptional again. And he, like, you don't think Lukaku is going to be the long-term Tuchel answer? Side. Sorry, or, or Tuchel. I don't think Lukaku. Sorry, I don't think Lukaku is going to be the long, the long term answer. Or sorry, I don't think Timo Werner is going to be the long term answer. But uh, either of them. Uh, <laughs> but as you say, Lukaku, whether they can just leave a hundred billion pound player sitting on the bench for a couple of seasons, probably seems uh, a little bit unlikely. But they've got a lot of depth there, and they were just brilliant to watch at times. It was such such an entertaining game. Uh, and the semi-finals are going to be the exact same. Did you? Were you feeling sorry for Chelsea at that at the end of that game? A little bit, a little bit sorry for them. They they, they couldn't have done much more. Uh, even even in the last three four minutes of extra time, they were still pounding away. Like they had a couple of decent chances, the Jorginho opportunity where he spun on it, and it was probably a little bit rash uh, with the body. That was a big chance as well. But like, this is what Madrid do. This is what Carlo Ancelotti does in knockout football. He just finds a way. Yeah, until you're three 0 up, and then Carlo will uh, not know what to do with his team. I mean, look, let's let's just call the Jets on the. It's a, long, it's a long time ago. There's a lot of love in here for for Carlo Ancelotti, who's always had the best team with the most money and the best players. Well, it's does like, he, does fair he have play the team. best team right now? Does he have the best team right now? Does he have a better starting eleven than Chelsea do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got, he? he's got it. Yeah, he does. Like the he does, and. Uh, and he's, he's at Real Madrid who've won the competition 13 times and I don't care what anybody says but that, that stuff seems to matter for whatever well, reason Chelsea, I don't know Chelsea, what it Chelsea is Chelsea won it last year they did yeah but um, look I, I don't think I, I, do you think Carlo Ancelotti is as good as Jurgen Klopp? I think he's a very different manager is he as good? Jurgen Klopp I don't think he's as good as Jurgen Klopp okay, right now but he enough. has had a yeah, consistent level yeah. of success but he's been good I don't, like, what, been where, good. where's the comparison? Not what, what is the comparison that but who is? Who is the manager Real Madrid should have that is the... No, look, loads, but is I, on the level of Jurgen Klopp. Well, Vincente Del Bosque, you know, uh, who else won? Um, did Del Bosque win back-to-back Champions Leagues and then get booted out? Do you know, it's like... 
let's not overrate sometimes the value of the manager when you've got Modric and Cruz and Benzema and Vinicius and David Alaba. Just saying, that's all. Um, Owen Sullivan says, sorry, but Kante was at fault for the two Madrid goals. Uh, Connor says, no, Gerrard did not have a better team than Chelsea. Is N'Golo Kante reaching the point where he's not actually capable of being? Was he at fault for both of them? It, one I, of the angles, one of the angles that make it look like maybe he was the culprit was whether he, it was his fault that the pass went straight to Madrid or whether it was the passer's fault. I'm not sure. Uh, he was also instrumental in everything good. I thought that Chelsea did in an attacking sense. Uh, you know, is he being caught out of position? Like they didn't have Jorginho. Maybe more has been expected of him. Maybe he's got used to having Jorginho alongside him a lot of the time, and him being the one who'll cover and just sit back. Uh, but I thought when he was on the ball, Kante was brilliant. And there was also, again, much like you know, there's such fine margins in the Champions League. Like Marcus Alonso's handball, like that's not given. It's always going to be given because it's not one of those rules where there's any debate for VAR. If the goal scorer the ball touches his hand in any way, it's automatically a free kick. But it was so harsh. And, you know, Manchester City have fallen foul of similar scenarios in, in big matches. They, these margins are tight. I think Alonso, that goal counts. There's no question Chelsea win that game. It's um, a millimetre. If, if Tuchel, for whatever reason, becomes available in the summer, um, how high is the stock at the moment? incredibly high for a number of reasons. Firstly, the way he transformed Chelsea when he came in, the way he got them into a uh, Champions League winning team. He can't have done himself any harm with how he's handled himself over the last couple of months with everything that's gone on at Chelsea. Uh, at, so, like, he will have his pick of the best clubs in the world. You're saying he should go in at Real Madrid ahead of Carlo Ancelotti, that they would get rid of this guy after he leads them to yet another Champions back to League back title. Champions League, yeah. wasting, wasting their time with this guy, uh, Boot him out and get Tuchel in. Like, Tuchel, whatever job, whatever big job, he obviously won't go back to Paris Saint-Germain, you'd expect, but does he just stay at Chelsea and does he buy the sign? Like, is he next in line at Manchester City? Is he next in line at Liverpool? It's hard to know, isn't it? The, it I, I guess so much depends on how much money the new owners are going to be willing to put in and what kind of level of autonomy he has in terms of um, squad building and team building and how much of the backroom team ends up being... Uh, associated with the previous ownership and their regime because they were all reporting to um, whoever was working for Abramovich so I don't know I, I, it's up for grabs I suppose and does he go to Bayern Munich? Uh, perhaps it be a, perhaps. A, a natural enough home for him? We should talk a little bit about that because Villarreal are through Bayern are out this is not I think what people expected it's not a massive surprise Villarreal obviously have been successful in Europe and I, I think we see the value of a a long, deep run in European football over a couple of seasons and um, getting good at winning knockout football matches. But the manner in which they did it, it's like them who scored the late winner to go through as opposed to Bayern, where it feels inevitable that the German team, Bayern Munich, have come from 1-0 down, they're at home, all the advantages are in their favour, but they get caught out. Well, it's probably like a lot of people screen hopping between the two of them and whenever you turned over, it was Bayern on the attack. Uh, maybe much like Sweden last night, just a lot of possession, a lot of possession and the ball will be with Sané and you're waiting for Sané or Gnabry or somebody to do something and then they try and take on the fullback and they'd end up just running it out of play and nothing was quite happening for them. But I flicked over just in time for the Villarreal winner and you're looking at the scoreline thinking, why are Bayern Munich so far up the pitch? Like, let this go to extra time. Use all your experience. Use the fact that you have a far better and deeper squad and just beat them in extra time. But they were 
going all out clearly to try and win the game in normal time Bayern Munich and got stung on the counter-attack by Villarreal and the story of Villarreal is uh, well spoken about at this stage a small town been able to compete at the very very top level winning Europa League backing it up by getting to a Champions League semi-final it's only in maybe this part of the world where there are questions about Unai Emery because of what happened at Arsenal but this is some body of work that he has managed uh, to put together and it's one of those now where if Liverpool can get through tonight, everyone says, well, you've had Benfica, you've had Villarreal, you couldn't have had a more straightforward uh, route to a Champions League final. But like, Villarreal have that consistency of causing upsets. Like they've just gone and done it against the Bayern Munich side who play somewhat similar to Liverpool in that they won't have all the ball. And they've gone about the business signing players in a, you know, with experienced players who've gone to England, much like Unai Emery, who've gone to England and it hasn't quite happened for and who are probably written off a little bit, but ended up going to England in the first place because they'd had a brilliant run in their team and got big moves, whether it's a Giovanni Lo Celso, who actually I thought was one of Tottenham's uh, better players over the last couple of years and had done quite well. Uh, like They signed Dan Juma. Like he's one of the real stories coming in from Bournemouth last summer where he absolutely lit up the championship last season. Sort of thought he'd end up at one of the top Premier League teams. They go in and they get him. Like Pau Torres decided to turn down Spurs during the summer. So Juan Foyt, I'm sure Tottenham fans are looking at him going, who is this guy? You know, never really got a chance at Tottenham. So he has pulled together. I wouldn't. It's too harsh to say they're a group of misfits, but he is a manager who's clearly able to work with any group and bring them on a level once he's given a bit of time. Is there anything in what happened last night that gives Liverpool a little bit of pause and concern that there's a strong chance they'll be a little bit complacent, as you would naturally be as a human being, with a significant lead at home, one of those great European nights, blah, 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 we're going to cruise through this. Benfica aren't a team of mugs. They're not the best team we've ever seen coming from Portugal playing in the Champions League. Not even the best team that we've seen come from Portugal in the Champions League in the last decade, not to go all the way back to Mourinho. But is there any any bit of them looking at, oh, Real Madrid had this game totally sewn up against Chelsea and Villarreal. Well, they shouldn't really be beating Bayern, but it's okay, we're going to be grand. Because they haven't been great in these situations. As in, they've allowed teams to score against them in these very same situations in Europe. And you're like, they make a bit more of a game of this than they need to. Well, and at this time of the season, when there are so many big matches, you think about when these fixtures are coming. So Liverpool, tonight they play Benfica. At the weekend, they play Manchester City. Next Tuesday, they play Manchester United. The following weekend, they play Everton. Then they will play, if they win tonight, Real. So if they keep winning those games, the Premier League is just going to be absolutely relentless. So maybe there is a slight taking your eye off the ball. Like Liverpool, they're rarely complacent, though at times in games they seem to have 10, 15-minute spells where they get a little bit sloppy and they allow teams to score. And Liverpool can't afford the way they play it, the high line, the real high press, that if they get sloppy, they're always going to give up an awful lot of chances because suddenly players are breaking the offside trap and that's how most of the opportunities come against Liverpool. It's a Champions League semi-final. Like, are you going to be complacent in a Champions League semi-final? Villarreal are there for a reason. So they will bite you in the ass if you let them. So I'm talking about the Benfica game tonight. Ah, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think, sorry, I don't think they're going to be complacent go. against Villarreal. But I, like, I think 2-0 up. Like, can you see a scenario where it's nil all and Benfica score in the 60th minute? No, I think Liverpool will. I think Liverpool will score. I, I, I think... Real are a different level to Benfica and that third goal like that third goal was such a game changer from a Liverpool point of view in that I'd imagine they will make changes well, how tonight many? not, not yeah. substantial changes I would expect Diaz will come in and start um, 
probably a change in midfield. Thiago played last week as well, so you'd expect that Thiago will drop out. Maybe Curtis Jones comes in or Naby and plays a lot of the big games in Europe. Maybe even two of the midfielders uh, swap out. A bit of rotation at the back. Kanata might start again instead of Matip. That's probably it. One of the front three. Maybe he takes a real risk and brings Firmino in and drops two of the front three. But City at the weekend is going to be a a rotational game as well, even if it is a cup semi-final. Do you think so? I think so. You've got Manchester United coming on Tuesday night in yeah, the Premier League. Uh, Again, but Liverpool, because of the depth, like rotation is a different thing for them now. You know, they're not bringing in Nat Phillips at the back as a bit of rotation. Like, Kanat has been exceptional every time he's come in. In those positions, there's not a huge difference from one to the other. Yeah, you want Mane and Salah, but a Firmino or a Jota or a Diaz, there's no great difference in quality or impact on the team from any of them. Likewise, the midfield three, like Thiago's suddenly become a big game player for them. But if it's Keita or Jones or even Elias who are inside alongside Henderson and Fabinho, like Fabinho seems to play almost every match unless they decide to play Henderson a bit deeper for one of them. But that's that's what they've done with two or three key signings of players who can make an impact. Maybe Chimikas starts one of the games at left back over the next week. I'd be, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he started on Saturday as well. So like they have that bit of depth that they've never had before where like real depth where there's not a dip in quality do you take by Salah making the changes. Do you take Salah for at least one, maybe two of these games if you're focusing, you decide on something further down the line? I think Salah probably step out for one of these matches. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Uh, but they, none of these guys end up missing too many games. We sort of talk about rotation and do a week off. They don't, they don't seem to want or need a week off. They just seem their body just seems to need games. Like they're not training, I'm sure. It's only when I was sitting in the press conference after the game on Sunday, and Pep Guardiola seemed delirious. You know, from now he's just done an hour of interviews and he's just been through the intensity of that game. And he was talking about tonight's match against Atletico. And it's only then you sit and you realise he's like it's tough on players, tough on managers when that game finishes Sunday evening he's leaving the stadium at nine ten o'clock probably going back home i know he's an obsessive and it's everything he wants but you get in monday morning what can you do with the players on monday morning very little they've got a recovery session you probably run through some tactics for atletico briefly then they fly out you get a quick session in yesterday morning at the stadium again you can't do anything intense and then it's match day there is no time at all for training for it's just maintaining fitness who, how quickly and how concisely can you get your tactics across and just relentless big games like it must be incredibly draining when you come to the end of the season to just go oh, how did we get through that uh, okay so look we obviously have plenty of time to talk a bit more about those uh, matches in the coming days and we'll be analysing tonight's games on tomorrow's show uh, it's 8 minutes past 8 this morning we want to talk a little bit about this Kenny Shields has gone viral not great when you're the manager of a, a football team and you're going viral after a team gets beaten 5-0 and it's not about your performance on the field of play. So Kenny Shields manages the women's team in the north, uh, beaten 5-0 by England last night. Uh, they have qualified for the Euros and uh, so it's a big summer for women's football um, in Northern Ireland. Let's have a listen to what Kenny Shields had to say about teams' propensity to concede goals quickly. Have a listen. I thought they were struggling a wee bit at times to open us up until the psychology of going two up uh, in the women's game you'll have noticed I'm sure you will if you go through the patterns when a team concedes a goal they concede a second one within a very short period of time 
right through the whole lot, the whole spectrum of the women's game, because girls and women are more emotional than men, so they take a goal gun in. They they don't take that very well. So if you watch, you go through the stats, which journalists love to do, going through stats, and you'll see teams conceding goals in 18 and 21 minutes, and then in 64 and 68 minutes. They group them because that's an emotional goal. So we conceded in 48, we should be three and uh, seven minutes, was it, or three and nine in, on Friday. And we were conscious of that. When we went 1-0 down, we killed the game. We tried to just slow it right down because to give them time to get that emotional imbalance out of their head. And, and that's, a, that, that's an issue we have, not just Northern Ireland, but all the countries have that problem. Uh, Kenny, what? what are you well, talking I, about? I read these quotes late last night. Uh, but Jesus when you hear Christ. it, it's, it's ten times worse. I mean... Sort out the emotional imbalance. This, this is dinosaur stuff. Um, uh, get, your, get your pretty little woman's head around the fact that you've conceded a goal there, girls. Uh, and if you don't do that, you need to... What? what I, like... It's always one oh, step Kenny, forward, Kenny. two steps back. Um, it is, and this, listen, Kenny Shields is going to, you know, face a very difficult few days, and and rightly so. And Northern Ireland, as you mentioned, have qualified for the European Championship finals. This should be a period of real huge opportunity for the women's game in the north. And this is all anyone is going to be talking about. And you know, I think Kenny Shields' position as manager is certainly going to come into question over the next couple of days because it is absolute dinosaur stuff like journalists love stats maybe so, maybe well, it's your here's just that like look at Southampton on Sunday on Saturday in the Premier League conceded four goals in the first half an hour of the game Sadio Mane scored a hat-trick against Villa in four and a half five minutes one time Nigel Clough scored a hat-trick for uh, was it for Liverpool in four minutes was that the record before that like I mean maybe you're just a shit coach Kenny maybe that's the problem Maybe your problem is that you don't actually understand how to stop a team conceding more than once because you haven't coached them properly. Did you ever think of that? Definitely not his fault, though. Could not possibly be anything to do with him or a man because apparently having a penis prevents you from conceding goals quickly. Listen, England are one of the best teams in the world, but they can do that against absolutely anybody, as any great team can do. So how you come up with that theory. And by the sounds of it, it's a theory that he has spoken about with other people. Like, he was talking about it in a way of, we all know this. Don't we all know this? You've all, all checked. This. You've all checked all this. Yeah. You've, all, you've all watched. You've all watched the women's game before. You, we all know that once one goes in, another one's probably going to go in. Come on, guys. Like, it doesn't happen in the men's game. Like, just, yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, but it shows, shows the fight that is still there. And, you know, when you, I, but he's in charge. When you were talking about Ireland. He's in charge. And, he's in charge of an sorry. entire country. He's in, well, I mean, you know, okay, that's sorry. He's in charge of an entire international team. <laughs> don't, don't spark another uh, controversy, Jer. Uh, yes, no, he like he has to be the absolute leader of uh, the women's game in Northern Ireland. And if that is the viewpoint of the manager who is going to represent them at a, at, at a, at a European Championships that's going to be at a level of interest that we've never seen before. Like, if you're now involved in Northern Ireland football and... You're involved in dealing with sponsors. And, you know, like every press conference now during the summer when they go 
for this massive tournament where, okay, they might be the biggest underdogs there. Like, this is all anyone's going to want to talk about. Like, this is, you're that guy. You're that guy who's going to give them the quote that'll do down the women's game. So I, I, I think Kenny Shields is going to struggle over the coming days to keep hold of that job because, as you say, it's just absolute, absolute Stone Age stuff. Like, what if you're a player in that dressing room? Well, that's it, isn't it? Listening to that, that is. And what have you been listening? What have you been here beforehand? And, like, and if, look, if you're saying that publicly, yeah. And the other thing is, that one other side of this is that actually, that that there is clearly, there are, there's obviously a population of dinosaurs still involved, in, I guess, in all sports. Um, but uh, to be able to rise to that position and think like that and feel comfortable enough expressing these views uh, and not have somebody challenge them along the way like you know and also just a deep understanding a deep failure to understand how uh, stats work like I've I've discovered this piece of information and so therefore I, I decree that it is because of this thing which I've just made up in my head like this thing over here and these things over here I'm putting these two together and I'm turning them into a an infallible theory of why women concede goals close to each other in football matches. Uh, come at me, lads. Come on. Come on. Come at me. Cause well, it's like, come on, Kenny. And I'm sure people would go and look at the stats. And if there is a statistic that lots of goals are conceded quickly, the main reason is the disparity that is there in the women's game at international level between the top and the bottom because of the investment that has been made in progressive countries and the lack of investment that has been made in countries like Northern Ireland and up until recently in the Republic of Ireland. And to flip right back to Sweden, you were talking about... Where the football associations uh, have been run by dinosaurs for, like, well, basically, exactly. um, basically since the split. Exactly. And, you know, you touched on Ireland. Should we expect more? It felt a bit like what we've seen from Irish teams for decades of one all away from home, sitting back, holding out. But the reason that's there with Sweden is that you know, Sweden have a 25-year, maybe a 40-year head start on Ireland when it comes to the women's game and how they treat it. They've qualified for every World Cup. Sweden and Ireland played their first international fixture pretty much the same year. Pretty much the same year. Yet it was another 20-something years before the FAI recognised the women's game and they became a part of it. While in Sweden, the investment has been there consistently. So they have a base and a body of work that enables them to be one of the best teams in the world. Where in the last three years, we've finally gotten on going, ah, Actually, maybe we should spend some money on this. And the great advantage for Ireland is that while there are Swedens out there, an awful lot of countries still haven't copped on to this. So there's a big, a huge opportunity still for the FAI over the coming years and for the FAI and for government to invest yeah. in the women's game and invest substantially and make Ireland one of the best teams in the world who qualify for every single tournament, who qualify for every European Championship, who qualify for every World Cup. And that can be done. That right. can be done just by investing lots and lots of money. So... Yeah, there's a long, as much as we're patting everyone on the back, there's a long way to go on lots of parts of it. And Kenny Shields, dear God. Nathan, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Thanks, Cheers. Cher. 17 minutes past eight here on OTBAM. We're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're going to hear from Emma Byrne a little bit later on about the Republic of Ireland. Uh, we'll get more thoughts on that. We'll obviously play her the Kenny Shields stuff. John Duggan's going to join us uh, for a bit of an explainer at where we are with um, Daniel Killian. We're actually going to hear as well from Stephen Breen, the crime editor of the Irish Sun. Um, about the uh, $5 million reward that has been um, offered for information uh, leading to the arrest of any of the uh, leaders of the Kinane cartel. Uh, that's all coming up in a while. Um, 
Olympic gold medalist though, Katie Harrington spoke with OTB Sports Phil Egan this week ahead of the launch of the Spar Community Road Trip. All community groups nationwide are invited to apply for a chance to win 10 grand in funding and a chance to spend time with Kelly as she tours Ireland on the Spar Community Road Trip. Here's a snippet of her chat with Phil Egan. The full interview is available across the OTB Sports channels. At the, the strategy tournament, did you think that there's a, a different vibe off you now from other fighters? Do you walk into a room now and they all stop talking and they're like, there she is now, there she is, the, it's the Olympic champion walking in? Um, uh, not really, like, um, I suppose, like, with a lot of different countries like Kazakhstan and uh, like some of the Asian countries and stuff, like, uh, I obviously wouldn't know a lot of those those boxers as as people, you know, like uh, their personalities, and I wouldn't have a relationship with them as such. But with the likes of like people from Sweden and Turkey and all those kind of countries, we'd all know each other, like, and we'd like we don't look at each other as like we wouldn't be like, oh, you're Olympic champion, like it's just like, oh, they are again, you know, like it's kind of like how are you, like, and yeah. we all we're all friendly with each other, you know, like and. And that's the way it is. Like, there's no airs or braces with any of us. Like, but there is a target on your back, though. Do you think? Do you accept that now that you're the the Olympic champion? You've obviously won world titles. Like, you're the one they want to beat. And and they, look, they they might be nice to you when they're chatting away to you. And I'm sure you have great relationships oh. with all these fighters. But when you step in the ring, they're out to catch you. One hundred percent. Like, definitely. Like, there is a target on me back. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but. I feel like there is more of a target so on me back then, obviously, since I've become an Olympic champion. But I also, I still also feel like the underdog. I know that's really mad, like, but I do. I always still, like, I, I feel like that. Like, I know I'm I'm the number one, but I train like I'm the number two or three. Do you know, I'm, I'm training for that spot, like, so I'm also training as if someone else is someone else has a target on the back. There's a couple of people out there who who I would class as the ones with the targets on their back. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I'm not going around thinking, oh, there's no one out there. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Like, I'm looking at other girls who are also really, really good, and I'm I'm classing them as the ones with the target on the back. So Although you, I know I have a target on my back. So you have to probably change maybe how you approach certain fights because everyone's going to be looking at you and you know they're going to be saying where can they beat Kelly Harrington so do you have to keep evolving in terms of style I know you obviously you have the, that ability to switch stances which is is a, such an advantage for a fighter yeah like I mean that's the thing like you hear a lot of boxers saying oh when I come back I'm going to be better never like but like let's be honest do they ever does anyone ever really come back do they grow an extra hand like or an extra leg to make them move fast or what no like the only thing you can really do is get fitter or sharper do you know what I mean Um, and like all I can work on is really really small things like keeping shape and uh, getting better at me distance management and stuff that's all you can do like there's not a whole lot that you can change really like there isn't like you know uh, so I suppose it's just tidying up what you have and maybe trying to add one or two extra things that you could do more of, basically. Yeah. Because, um, like, 
yeah, you can't really, you, 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 you can't like, you can't, look, Jesus Christ, like, or you can't get any better. Like, that's not the way I'm saying it. Like, I'm not saying it in that way. I mean, like, boxing is boxing, like, you know. It's it fine margins, it really, isn't it, as well? It's such that's fine. That's exactly it. It's what you do. Like, it's about preparation. It's about what you do on on the lead up to a tournament. Your, your rest and your recovery, your nutrition, all that kind of stuff comes into play. Like, uh, you know, it's, you're never going to get, like, a whole lot better. Like, you know, it is fine margins. It is those 1%, 2%. Yeah, when you're when you're trying to make tweaks, how much film do you watch back of yourself, and and how do you feel about that? Are you your own worst critic? Um, I like I don't watch too much back of myself. Um, yeah, because I hate watching like I hate watching anything back of myself, whether it's <laughs> boxing or interviews or yeah. listening to an interview. I don't. I just don't do it. I just hate it. Like, um, I to be honest with you, I just put it. I, all my faith is in the coaches, like, and and I just, I, I, like, look, I know what way I do, I know what way, like, if my shape is gone and all that kind of crack, I know what what's what, you know. But I, I, I put me, me, me trust and me faith in the coaches to be able to tell me what I'm doing wrong and what I need to tidy up on and stuff. And I also put me trust in them to be looking up opponents. I, I do look up opponents, like, I don't actually look them up. I look up. If there's a tournament on, I'll follow the tournament uh, schedule and I'll see who's like who's coming out on each side of the draw, like who's progressing, you know? Yeah. And when I get to the final and the semi-finals, I will share their, the the girls' names with our uh, analysis. <laughs> oh my god! Why can't I say? It? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know the... the uh, Analyst. <laughs> uh, I just can't say that word. Yeah. Analyst. Analyst. Yeah, that's Sorry. the one. Yeah. <laughs> I do share their names with him and uh, then he'll get the fights. He'll actually go and he'll save the fights and he'll send them to the coaches. The coaches will be able to see that who, who these girls are. I don't need to look at them because they've looked at them. They're doing their homework and then they just they get me to work on what I need to do to if I ever encounter those opponents. So you would go into a fight and you obviously have a game plan, but I suppose the the beauty of it is, and, and, and we've seen this with plenty of your fights before, and even think back to the Olympic final, where you can tweak things during the fight. Yeah. Uh, do you know, like... I don't go in thinking that it just happens. It's just it's just uh, instant, really. Like it's a uh, survival mode kicks in, and uh, it just happens. So, how does the next few weeks look for you, Kelly, in terms of training and, and schedules? Intense. It's going to be busy uh, and intense. Um, like we've a camp now in Italy, and then the World Championships in, in Turkey. So that's going to be intense. Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to a little break already after it like hasn't even started, but I know what's all ahead of me, and yeah. it is intense. You know, it, it it can be when you're away in places like this, it can be a a very lonely sport, even though you're surrounded by other boxers and stuff. But it can be very very lonely, you know. Yeah, and you're probably thinking then as soon as that's done after the World Championships, any chance of a honeymoon? 
No, because we have the Europeans then. Uh, the Europeans are in June or July. I'm not 100%. I think they're July. Yeah. But it'd be like, you'd only get a short break after uh, in like after the world, you'd get a very short break. And then, then uh, preparing for the Europeans. And yeah, like flat out, it, boxing, it, like there is no, like boxing is probably only, one of the only sports that, it's going all year round, all year round. There's no uh, layoff where you can go off and go on a three month bender or anything like that. Yeah. Like we're <laughs> we're we're professional amateur athletes. Yeah, actually, just on the word professional, you were quite quick after the Olympics because everyone just thinks that as if you be if you conquer the amateur game, that you're going to become a professional. But you were saying no, I want to stay as an amateur. But do you? What do you make of the the professional? game do you look at many of the pro fights like I don't like I'll support like I love Michael Conlon and I, I've loved him as an amateur so I followed him through into the pros you know what I mean and yeah. I support him um, and there's loads of other boxers out there as well like uh, who I'd be the same with but it's not my cup of tea like uh, I it is a business do you know that's what it is like it's business and I'm just not into it like I, I started boxing for a different purpose probably to a lot of a lot of the people who are pro now you know like and that purpose is is still I'm still feeding that purpose do you know what I mean yeah uh, boxing gives me structure and it helps me get out of bed in the morning and and that's what I like about it you know uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not looking to make millions out of it Jesus like if I could it would be nice but I don't want to go professional and you know make it a job because right now it doesn't feel like it's a job and whereas if I go professional then that's what what it will be it would be it would be work you know and it's that's not what what it is to me right now you know? yeah I'm just I'm just curious like would you watch this massive fight at the end of the month to of the top fighters, Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano headlining Madison Square Garden. Is that something you'd get up in the early hours of the morning to watch or would you watch it back maybe the next day? I'd watch it back the next day. I wouldn't get up during the early hours of the morning to yeah. watch it, no. But uh, I would watch it back the next day. Or maybe if, I, if I'm if i in bed and uh, if I wake up during the night, I might follow the uh, round by round uh, yeah. shouts, you know, on like people they be giving it out or to give it out like round one and be following it like you know but uh you know i wouldn't stay up because they're on our crazy up like, ah, yeah, they will yeah they, i kind of i've got a sense now where i tend to just get back up out of bed i don't stay up and try and watch them because I'm getting too old for that but <laughs> what, what, what do you think though do you actually it's a really hard fight to call isn't it i do you know what i'll be very honest with you i don't have a clue because i don't know too much about serrano so all I know is what I'm hearing about off other people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I can't say whether this person or that person will do it, like because I don't know too much about Serrano. Um, but I really hope Katie does the job. Do you know, I really, really do. Like, um, this would be great, absolutely great for her if she if she gets this one over the line. This is this is this will be really, really good for her. Yeah, and just before we let you go, I know it's uh, coming up to Easter weekend. You've talked about your love of chocolate before. Will you have an old sneaky Easter egg, do you think? 
Jeez, oh, it'd be rude not to, wouldn't it? <laughs> Here, normally I'd be like, no, no, I won't. And then when I get home, uh, I'd be eating. Do you know what? I've, I've found myself eating elves the press lately and everything. And not even like taking biscuits and eating the biscuits while I'm still like head in the press. And Mandy's come in and she's like, what are you actually doing? And I'm like, oh, it's like, oh my God, you're a secret eater. Like, and I'm like, oh, it looks that way, doesn't it? But like, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> But uh, I will be having uh, an Easter egg, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you deserve it. And um, congratulations again on, on the wedding and obviously with the, with the new house and best of luck with the, the World Championships coming up and the, the Europeans. And we wish you the best of luck because uh, I think what we've learned in the last year, if we didn't already know it is, Kelly, you're a national treasure on the late, late singing as well. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, not a hero. I don't know about that, but like, look. <laughs> but thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks a million for your time, Kelly. That thanks is, a million. Thank you for having us. No worries at all. That's Olympic boxing champion Kelly Harrington, who was on hand today to launch the Spar Community Road Trip. All community groups nationwide are invited to apply for a chance to apply for €10,000 in funding and a chance to spend time with Kelly as she tours Ireland on the Spar Community Road Trip. Applications will open on Wednesday the 20th of April and will remain open for a period of four weeks until Friday the 20th of May. OTB AM It's a brilliant front cover on the Irish Sun this morning. It's a wanted poster. It's the three Kinnahans and the uh, headline is Cartel Chiefs have price put on their heads. Gangsters hit with flight ban and sanctions. I'm delighted to say Stephen Breen, the crime editor of the Irish Sun, is with us to explain what is going on. Stephen, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. How are you? All good? Um, so this morning, Bob Aram is on uh, News Talk Breakfast talking about how he was shocked that the Kinahans had any business in America. And as a result of that, he is now cutting ties with Daniel Kinahan. I think um, the rest of the world had a fair idea that uh, the, you know, the Kinahans had been named in the Irish High Court and so therefore nothing new was actually learned about their activities yesterday. But what was new was the interest at such a high level of the American authorities. And that seems to be a game changer in this whole thing, Stephen. Well, absolutely. I think the press conference yesterday was one of the most uh, surreal press conferences I've ever witnessed in my time covering journalism. I think no one thought for a second that um, the United States government would issue a $5 million reward. Oh, you've just gone on mute there, Stephen, for some reason. Maybe you might have a little quick look at um, getting his line back there. So uh, we're talking about the, the press conference yesterday where the range of sanctions that have been issued against the Kinahans was made public and indeed the high level of the US authorities which is definitely a game changer in terms of Kinahan's standing in the world of boxing and is going to force the boxing authorities the broadcasters and the fighters themselves to take action when it comes to um, their involvement with Kinahan and you would expect by implication MTK as well so we'll talk about the fallout for this over the next while which is um, I think dialing Stephen Breen back up there to see if we can re-establish connection with him there. But um, so it is actually on the front of all of the newspapers this morning. The uh, wanted poster, I think, is also on the front cover of the Star. Yeah, most wanted, uh, five million US dollars, and they've obviously got the uh, US, uh, the DEA uh, badge in the top corner for that one. And um, I think the point about this is that yeah. So we can go back to Stephen there. Sorry, Stephen, you were you were just saying there that. Um, 
uh, maybe to start again, what got the American authorities interested to the level that they had that press conference yesterday? I think following the the Regency Hotel and the numerous murders that took place in Ireland and Spain afterwards, there was a commitment by the Gardaí to dismantle and uh, totally uh, disrupt the activities of the Kittahan Organised Crime Group. And I think following that, um, the Gardaí realised that this is, was a, an initiative, uh, a project, a strategy that, that couldn't be done uh, by themselves. So they had to engage their international partners. And as a result of that, you know, they engaged in discussions with the authorities in Holland, in Spain, Europol, and then indeed America, because I think globally law enforcement now sees that the threat that the Kinnahan gang has posed, because they're no longer just an ordinary gang coming from Ireland. They've built up this huge power base, this huge uh, wealth of resources that they have at their disposal. And and the, the enforcement agencies in America could see that, and they even said yesterday about how dangerous they were, how they engaged in, in drugs trafficking, arms trafficking, and also in murder. So I think it needed a coordinated approach to bring down uh, the Kinahan cartel because obviously the law enforcement agencies realize that they do pose a serious threat. And when you have the U.S. authorities on, on side here and to show their commitment to bringing them down because they do have a threat globally and to equate the, the Kinahan gang with, with uh, Mexican drug cartels, Russians, and also Japanese mafia, I think it shows the level of cooperation. And I think this is what was needed to uh, eventually bring and destroy and dismantle the Kinahan organized crime group. So obviously yesterday is, is uh, important in signifying to the world that uh, you shouldn't be doing any business with the Kinahans. What does it mean for, uh, we believe, for Daniel Kinahan, who is resident in Dubai? Uh, what, what actually happens now? Is there pressure on the Emirates authorities to hand him over? How does that work? And, and why is the involvement of America important in that? I, I think it's very important, so it is, because Daniel Kinahan obviously moved to Dubai, you know, following the incident at the Regency Hotel. Um, he will know full well that there is no extradition treaty between Ireland and the United Arab Emirates. But there have been cases recently, in recent times, where serious players in organised crime from Holland have been deported from um, Dubai to uh, the, the Holland. So, uh, but when you have the Americans on board, when you have the resources available to them, obviously there will be political pressure will be continuing. We heard the Taoiseach yesterday talking about uh, the Kinahan organised crime group, the possibility of another reward coming from the Irish government. So, you know, the, the pressure has already been put on the Dubai authorities. But I think when you have like, the Americans getting involved, I mean, the decrees issued yesterday were from President Biden himself, that he has the authority to issue these decrees. So it shows the threat that the Americans are taking this. So there will be untold pressure put on the authorities in Dubai to take action against Daniel Kinahan. The question for him is now and his associates, you know, are, are people in the boxing industry, people who have big sports personalities, and we, we heard the, the Garda Commissioner yesterday talking about um, should these individuals look to who they're doing business with? Because... The Kinahan brand, after yesterday's announcement, is now toxic. You know, our people really want to go and do business with someone who has a $5 million uh, bounty on their head. So a lot of questions remain uh, to be answered here. And, and there's no question that there is huge pressure on Daniel Kinahan and his associates at this moment. Do we know what triggered the American involvement in the announcement yesterday? Is it anything to do with the fact that the Biden administration have strong links with Ireland, that maybe some calls were made? Can you help us out here? Was it anything to do with that? Or was this always going to be part of the... Like, Was it just that the body of work reached a point where the American authorities were comfortable to say, OK, we're going to do this now? 
I think we heard at the press conference yesterday, we heard about the uh, the Garda Commissioner and Assistant Commissioner John O'Driscoll talk about the high-level negotiations and talks that have been going on since 2018. Indeed, when the Garda Commissioner took up his position in 2018, one of the first briefings he had was with the Assistant Commissioner John O'Driscoll, who spoke about the desire and briefed him on the threat posed by the Kinnahan cartel. And I think from then onwards, they realised that they did need the support of other law enforcement agencies, and that included the support of the American uh, government and the American administration. But uh, in recent times, you've had senior guardy traveling to America. Last year, there was a liaison officer appointed to Colombia, also a liaison officer in Washington. Oh, that line's just gone again. That That is um, Stephen Breen, the crime editor of the Irish Sun there. We were nearly finished up item anyway so um, we'll leave that there for now but that is the story this morning um, and as I said Bob Arum has been on News Talk Breakfast he's been talking about so I don't know if you remember but Bob Arum was basically saying that uh, Daniel Kinnan's an honourable guy and that was his understanding of it and uh, the stuff in the press was stuff in the press and he had no evidence or anything about it well obviously nobody can say that anymore because the US government have as uh, Stephen Breen put it there put a bounty on Daniel Kinahan's head. So just have a listen to this. This is Bob Arum, legendary boxing promoter, founder of Top Rank, the CEO there, a man who's literally seen everything in the game all the way back to Muhammad Ali um, and who's been centrally involved in trying to put together the big heavyweight fights, the big super fights, particularly the Tyson Fury, um, Anthony Joshua fight, which never happened. But here's the conversation that... um, uh, Bob Arum has been having this morning with Shane Coleman of News Talk Breakfast. We pick it up here after he'd stated that he last dealt with Daniel Kinnan just two or three months ago. But I put it to you that if you're if you're banned from doing doing business with U.S. corporations, U.S. companies, it's it's very difficult to have a future in in boxing promotion. Well, I think that's fairly obvious, and also. Uh, there is, uh, uh, as far as the UK is concerned, which is the second biggest uh, boxing country in the world. Uh, you know, Sky has uh, and BT uh, have um, made their position clear on Kinahan that they want nothing to do with him or uh, his people. Uh, obviously, you're, you're involved in this huge fight, Tyson Fury fighting on on Saturday week. You're promoting it as right. as you as you've done many times over the the, the, the decades. Promoted huge fights. Did Daniel Kinnan ever have any involvement at all in 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 this upcoming fight? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, I I have uh, partnered with uh, Frank Warren of Queensbury, uh, as we have in the past. And uh, 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 Frank and I, uh, uh, between us, uh, said that we didn't want Kinahan to be involved in this. Uh, I think he tried through Frank to become involved, and we wouldn't uh, allow that. Nothing to do with this, though. Nothing to do with... uh, with uh, the U.S. government regulations, but he hasn't been involved in the in the uh, uh, fight with uh, Fury and White, and uh, he won't be uh, 
uh, involved at all uh, in that fight. But okay. that, again, is not related to this U.S. Uh, declaration. Two last quick questions before we let you go, Bob, and, and I know you're pressed f- for time. Uh, were you very shocked when you heard this news today? Had you any inkling that this might be in the, in the pipeline? Not, I, I was, I, I wasn't shocked particularly, but I was surprised because I had no inkling that it was coming down, that there was any type of U.S. involvement here. That was the lit. I knew all of the accusations uh, from the Irish uh, side of it. I mean, that uh, the Irish uh, uh, media and uh, all of that. But I didn't even contemplate that the U.S. would be involved. Based on what you have heard today and based on what the U.S. government has said and the, you know, the U.S. ambassador to Ireland was was very, uh, very upfront today in, in her comments in relation to, to, to the Kinnahans. Um, could you ever envisage doing business with Daniel Kinnahan again in the future? No. I, I, you know, again, unless something obviously dramatically changes, uh, which I can't foresee, I will not do business with uh, Kinnahan based on these uh assertions by the U.S., by my government. I mean, just uh, I don't believe uh, that somebody who is implicated in drug trafficking uh, should be involved in boxing and or should be and particularly shouldn't be involved uh, with my company top rank in any capacity. Uh, Bob Arum having a road to Damascus moment yesterday after the, sorry, that's this morning after the press conference yesterday about Daniel Kinahan. Uh, it was okay when it was Irish kids that were, you know, getting uh, sucked into the uh, murder and drugs game. But when it's going to be American kids, though, no, top rank, not interested because, you know, it's a bit too close to home. So uh, good old Bob Arum there, 90 years of age, still going strong, still centrally involved in everything that's happening in the world of boxing and denying that uh, Kinahan has any involvement in the upcoming fight which is, uh, I don't know, 10 days away, 8 days away at this point. So uh, a series of interesting press conferences to come particularly for Tyson Fury and I don't know, I actually expect a, a Twitter video from Tyson Fury to drop in the next 24 hours or so where we get to know what he thinks about the situation and it also leaves MTK Global in an interesting spot with all of the boxers that they control and the who's who list particularly of Irish boxers who are involved with MTK. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens over the next while with that. John Duggan, good morning to you. Yeah, hi, Ger. Um, I'd love to ask Tyson Fury if he now is uncomfortable with any of the past pronouncements he's made. I suspect he won't be. I suspect that he's going to say... Well, I don't want to second-guess what he's going to say, but um, he has very much been a fully signed-up member of um, the support group here and... Maybe he changes his tune now, but maybe he doesn't. I think he has to answer the questions next week. And it's interesting that Bob Arum said in that that Drew Frank Warren, Daniel Kinnan was looking to get involved in this fight. And Drew Harris, the Garda Commissioner yesterday in that press conference, warned those involved in sport and unboxing to examine any relationships they may have with Daniel Kinnan. 
I would make the point that what was implicit is now absolutely explicit. Uh, and if you deal with these individuals who have been sanctioned or these entities which are being sanctioned, you are, in be, you are involved in a criminal network. I would ask them to look to their own business, uh, the uh, probity and, of their own business, and then their relationship uh, with their fans. And really, um, is this something that they want to be involved with in terms of their legitimate business? And I would think the answer to that is a resounding no. You now have the weight of the world's police, the five million you see it on the screen, the US involved, all the agencies. I think to myself when I was looking at this yesterday, well done Barry McGuigan for, at the time, coming out in that panorama documentary and the bravery that he showed to call this out when he did. Yeah, there wasn't a whole heap of people no, uh, nobody else. at that point doing that. So uh, Now, here's the thing, right? So, what did the boxing authorities do? Because but it's lawless, as as Kieran Cunningham said on the show last night. It's the wild west. Uh, like you can be an advisor, <laughs> and how do you prove you're not an advisor? Do you know, <laughs> yeah. like, um, yeah. So look, I, I think that uh, there's there's probably been a lot of code in the past as well as about like um, when uh, Daniel Kinahan's involvement in boxing was was being praised for someone who was capable of getting deals done. That means giving money like let's you know that that's code for you put the the biggest purse on the table um and so what was the point of that and uh what was what was the the rationale behind that what was the public relations strategy behind that like bear in mind there was a period of time when uh if you said anything connected to uh, Daniel Kinnan's involvement in boxing that legal letters were being issued and they were very carefully trying to uh, legitimise that aspect of, of his life and it, it feels a little bit like the whole point of this was, the whole point of getting involved in boxing was to kind of take a step away uh, from what happened yesterday and to prevent what what was happening yesterday and that's why the involvement of the Americans is, is so key to this because it means that Bob Arum didn't give a shit at all no. about anything that happens American law is the only ma- law that matters in his mind and, and that's clear from the interview and in the world of boxing it, that's true too and so what this does now is it prevents um, any legitimization of that reputation and that it'll have grounds. everybody running for the hills yeah so and what happens to MTK that's going to be very interesting yeah. what, what, what is the future for MTK because they were like oh nothing to do with us anymore and then actually around 2020 it was like no 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 you know so not, not only was he our founder he is now back involved helping our fighters again uh, in a personal capacity will MTK be rebranded under a new name I wonder very, very soon well like it's very interesting to see what the future of that is and and, and also uh, the relationships with the broadcasters well, the broadcasters' answer to this will be yeah. Well, the, the broadcasters were all very scared of um, of what had happened over the last while, but then it kind of it disappears again. But you now have the biggest fight in the world happening next week, and one of the guys is constantly in photos, constantly telling everybody how great Daniel Kinnerhan is, and um, it's just the story will continue to ratchet up and ratchet up. Um, but yeah, so look, obviously we're going to continue to cover that uh, over the next while. I guess there are some other stuff going on. Well, Ted Hag has got the United job. Uh, it's 99% now. I think it maybe would have been about 70% last week, but he's got a three or a four year deal. Steve McLaren's name, interestingly, being mentioned uh, as a backroom staff member, which I think would be good for United. Now, I know the world has moved on since he was there in 99, but he was a treble winning coach. Robin Van Persie's name being mentioned. He will not have full control over transfers. Uh, there will be a director of football Look, but he's got the gig. Fifty-two-year-old. What do you do with Ronaldo? That's the key thing. Boot him out. Yeah. Um, 
That's the thing that they got. Like Ronaldo has not worked there, in my view. Um, one of the best results in Irish women's football history, if not the best. Yesterday, one all draw against the Swedes. Katie McCabe with a goal. Uh, Georgia, Finland, Slovakia to come. Uh, Chelsea, to me, they blew it in the first leg uh, against Real Madrid. As well as they did last night, it was always difficult to, to pull it out in the Bernabeu. And we saw Modric setting up that goal and then Benzema again scoring. Uh, and so what it means now is that City, uh, Manchester City, if they get through against Atletico tonight, the 1-0 lead that they bring to uh, the Wanda, then Ruben Diaz could be back, will play Real in the semi-finals, and Liverpool, we'd have to think, are, are through against Benfica. Or else it's a Madrid derby over two legs in the semi-finals, which would also be sensational. Yes, and um, Atletico just can't get past Real at this stage uh, of, of football. They can never get past them, which is kind of sad in a way. But so Liverpool via Real, Unai Emery, you know, once again, it was so maligned, I thought, unfairly as well at the time and given out about his, the, way, the way he said words and that kind of thing. And like he's proven himself as a top manager, um, knocking out Bayern Munich 2-1 on aggregate. So that's what's going on tonight. Two matches kicking off at 8 o'clock. And that's pretty much it. Like racing at Goran Park, lots of uh, Gaelic games action. I, I'm, I'm not too comfortable with the way the championships just suddenly appeared in, on us. Uh, and then it'll be over by July. I just find this whole thing a bit ridiculous, really. Um, it's been there's so many other things going on I, I felt Jared, like last weekend was the biggest weekend in sport completely you had the Masters you had the Grand National you had the Champions Cup you had Man City Liverpool you got City Liverpool in the Cup semi-final this weekend you got Champions Cup and you got the Championship kind of pushed in there and it'll be forgotten about on the Monday the Champions are out on yeah, Saturday, on Saturday evening. evening yeah and then the following week it's going Mayo and the hurling round robin starts and it's you're not going to get the attention and you're giving away your attention in August September it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and there's not that many games proposal B would have been a good idea. Anyway, sure, look, we're going to die talking about GAA fixtures. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we, we you know, as you said, it's China 10. Um, <laughs> okay, you done? No, we got virtual insanity, do we? Do we have it? Do we have that sting? We do. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! So we're going to up the road to Hilton Head in South Carolina for the RBC Heritage, which begins tomorrow. Um, the tally at the moment is a profit of 12.6%. So the Masters wasn't great. Cantlay and Peters were a bit floppy. Um, but uh, McElroy was second. Larry was tied for third. We had them as well. So either of those could have won and it would have been an amazing week, but it wasn't. So we got a quartet of golfers this week. I'm feeling so confident about the uh, the headline tip this week, which is Matt Fitzpatrick. Loves this course so much that he's got a head cover of the lighthouse on one of his drivers. Um, went there as a kid. He is now playing so well on the US Tour. What, seven top finishes, seven top 20s in his last eight starts, 14th at the Masters. Uh, top of their, all of the statistics this year is Matt Fitzpatrick on the US Tour. He's 20 to 1. We're going to put six each way in him. Um, he was fourth in this last year, but the year before he had four rounds in the 60s before 14th. Matt Fitzpatrick, to my mind, is tailor-made to have his maiden US PGA Tour win this weekend at the Heritage. So he's the headliner. Secondly, Doug Im for three each way, 125 to 1. I, we backed him in this last year and he was seven under par through 10 holes of the final round, finishing it with a 66 for a tie for 33rd. It's a Pete Dye design, this course, and Doug Gim plays well on these types of courses and was sixth of the players only a month ago. So Doug Gim is a really good ball striker and I think good out. 
play, as it were, his price um, of 125 to 1. And the final two, Patrick Cantlay is 20 to 1. Give him another chance. Has been third twice here in seventh in four starts. And he's one of the best scramblers on tour, Patrick Cantlay, who I felt now when I think about it was too undercooked, didn't play enough coming into the Masters. He's 20 to 1. And Denny McCarthy, the guy with the Irish name, 100 to 1 for two each way. The best putter on tour for two years in a row, but playing a lot better from tee to green recently has had seven t- top 25s and 16 starts and was 13th in this last year Denny McCarthy 100 to 1 so Denny McCarthy Patrick Cantlay Doug Gim and the headline this week folks I'm so confident about Matt Fitzpatrick John, the heritage John good stuff that's this week's Virtual Insanity you can uh, follow that at otbsports.com you'll get more from John across the day on otbsports.com and of course you can hear him on Saturday afternoon from 1 o'clock live on Off the Ball on News Talk now I just want to read this text Dahlia Shocknessig says well done the girls in green backs to the wall bravery to earn the point my daughter was going crazy with nerves watching it Emma Byrne good morning to you how are you good morning how are you I think a lot of people had uh, particularly when there's just these flashbacks to countless times in Irish sport where there's a free kick right in front of our goals. The clock is in the red. It's 94 and a half minutes. It was only supposed to be four minutes. But this time, the goal didn't happen and we got away with the one all. And it's like a big, big moment for this team. Massive. It was a huge game. Probably the most important game in, in Irish footballing history. Women's, anyway. Um, yeah, but I, I was the same. I was watching it with uh, Olivia O'Toole. And we were just like, I have a really bad feeling about this. And we just, we couldn't watch uh, the, the literally the last 10 seconds. But um, it was totally deserved. I mean, it was fantastic result. Absolutely brilliant. That with the result, Finland, Slovakia drawing. Um, it's looking really, really good for the girls. You know the quality of this Swedish team really well. They, they play, I think, the vast majority of them play in the Champions League. What's the difference? Like, how, how far behind are we technically at this stage? And, and maybe just put some context around how good a performance it was from us from a team perspective to be able to match them last night. Yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a, an unbelievable performance from, from our girls. But Sweden as a team, I mean, they're ranked number two in the world. Um, they, they they got runners up in the Olympics twice uh, they won the Algarve Cup three times they're up there with the best teams but in regards to the difference between us and them there isn't much to be honest um, they're very very direct very fit very physical and and they keep the ball very well the midfield keep the ball very well and I think that might be a little bit of the difference there because when we won the ball back we were struggling to keep it and, and we were so uh, you know, in defensive mode, we were so deep that it was very difficult for us to keep the ball. And that was the main difference because when we did manage to do it a few times, um, we were very threatening and, and Sweden were very worried. So if we could do that a little bit more, it would be a much, much even game. How do we do that? Is that is that a philosophy shift? Is it a slight personnel tweak? Is it is it actually something that Vera Power wants to do? What do we need? No, no, she definitely will want to do it. I mean, that's it's going to be easier for the girls and it's really difficult to play the way they played last night for 93 minutes um, and the girls will be absolutely exhausted today. They really put in a shift. But what we will need to do is just grow in confidence, which last night would have definitely helped and encourage our midfielders to get on the ball and not panic. But you need a lot of players that are good on the ball, that are comfortable on the ball and that want to be on the ball and that's kind of a building process and at the moment it's just about getting results and then when we get into um, uh, the the finals hopefully 
that will have been worked on and, and it's the only way that we can compete at that level. Well, pretty much, Vera uh, Power was a pains to point out the difference in the number of games that the Swedes had had together, 55 over the last two years versus 20 for her since she's taken charge and that there's a disparity there that like, it's clear that playing games vastly increases the speed at which a team improves. So I know she was talking about that was a message to UEFA. It felt like it was also a bit of a message to the FAI, get me more games. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I was speaking to Vera Powell a while ago and, and she was saying it is difficult because they don't have many days together and they're constantly preparing for games. So to actually have even two days to be able to work on your ethos and your methods and your style is really difficult. And yeah, it probably will take uh, some funding and, and some time to get all the girls together um, and, and try and get those training camps or wherever it is. And that is very difficult. And yes, Sweden have played together for a long, long time. And I think their average age will be 27, 28. So, you know, they're all around the same age, the same generation. They've played underage together. And this that team have been together for a very long time. And, and ours haven't. And um, a few of them have, but the bulk of the team haven't. So, yeah, it's about getting in the, the group that you want to work with and, and keeping that group and trying to keep them fit. Uh, and that's a that's a quite a heavy task as well. And just improving the strength and depth is the other aspect of that as well. However, that has to happen. Yeah, whether it's you, you recruit uh, from abroad um, with the Irish grannies <laughs> Uh, or you know you you try to to bring up the the younger ones and, and we have a very young young team at the moment anyway um but you know we also have a few injuries as well which is going to be a big difference uh, for the next couple of games especially in defense we had Megan Megan Connolly playing back there as a centre back I'm sure <laughs> she um she was as surprised as I was when she was told but you have Diane Caldwell injured, uh, Megan Campbell, who is a massive, massive advantage for any team with that throw-in. I mean, it's probably one of the reasons Liverpool got promoted um, at this stage so early on in the season. And um, and yeah, so, you know, it's we need to add more players to that squad and it's, it's only going to get better. And with the likes of Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan in midfield, that keeping the ball aspect in midfield is, is very realistic and you just need to try and get uh, maybe two more players in there that are comfortable on the ball and um, that will really work for Ireland, yeah. What about the goalkeeping position? Um, this is something that we've kind of struggled with uh, for a while since you left, basically, and uh, it looks... I, I, I'm still not sure if Vera Powell knows exactly what she wants. She kind of said it was a brave decision to go with Courtney Brosnan last night, but actually it wasn't that brave because Courtney Brosnan played really well. No, but as a selection um, point of view, it was really brave because Courtney Brosnan hasn't played games for Everton. She's really rusty um, in relation to games, which is so important for a goalkeeper. And when I seen the team sheet, I was surprised again. I was like, she's really sticking with Courtney Brosnan. And I don't see her in training, so I don't know what she's like. But I, I just think it's, you know, it's a bit of a worry if a, a goalkeeper specifically hasn't uh, played many games. But she was the player of the match for me. She was absolutely fantastic. She looked really sharp. So I was eating my words completely. And um, and she was just fantastic. And especially, particularly that saved uh, towards the end, around the, the 70th minute, down to her left. It was just unbelievable save. And 
you could just tell that she wasn't going to concede an easy goal. And it was an unfortunate thing that she actually conceded at all because um, actually I woke up this morning feeling a little bit robbed and feeling a bit disappointed that Ireland didn't get the whole three points. But, you know, 1-1 is a fantastic result as well. Tammy, if you were advising her and pointing out that there is a chance to be part of a team that goes to a World Cup, would you be saying look for a move try and find somewhere where you can be first choice or is it actually more important to knuckle down at Everton and try and I, I don't know the, what the uh, difference between her and the current Everton goalkeeper is or if there's any chance for actually uh, supplanting her and if maybe playing international games is going to help so what, what would your advice be? Well I'd advise her to have a chat with the manager there is a, um, a new manager gone in there um, they're they're fairly low on the table. They're fighting relegation. I mean, it looks like Birmingham are going to get relegated, but Everton are down there. So I'd be certainly telling her to knock on the door. It's, something's not working there. And also with her performance last night, as soon as she goes back into the club, she needs to have that conversation because she needs to play. And I'd be telling her you need to play and you need to speak to the manager and you need to be fairly sure and confident that you're going to be a starting goalkeeper and if you have any doubt at all you need to move her contract is up this year the end of June so I'd be surprised if she stayed there to be honest considering the the amount of games or the lack of games she's got because as a goalkeeper it's um it's really difficult to sit on the bench especially if your team are losing and, uh, you know, maybe the goalkeeper's not having the best of times. So hopefully last night will give her that confidence because it, it might take that to, for her to, to be able to go in and have that conversation. Yeah, she's gone in from a position of strength. I've just gone up against literally the second best team in the world and uh, more than held my own, ended up player of the match. Come on, give me a, give me a go here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. She was playing the cup games and they got knocked out fairly early. And a lot of managers like to do that. They like to give the league to one keeper and the cup to the other and they stick with it. And um, But it's not working for them. So she's a really good uh, fighting chance of you know going in there and getting her position. But she needs that conversation if she's already had it. Maybe she's already had it. Um, and maybe she's already looking for a new club. Um, and, and will there be much clamour for her? Is she... Is she- it, it looks like she's good enough to play at that level in the um, in the top division in England. Yeah, and, and you know it's difficult. There are a lot of really good goalkeepers um, in the the WSL now, and there aren't many teams. So, I mean, she's definitely good enough. Looking at how she was last night, she's good enough, um, and managers will be watching that. So, I definitely think there there will be a couple of teams you know definitely willing to sign her but she has to find the right place as well the right coach uh, that for me is a huge thing the goalkeeping coach and how the team works so maybe a team that's uh, getting well Liverpool have a very good keeper as well but another team that's getting promoted might be a good option for her but yeah she definitely should stay in the W the the, the the Women's Super League 100% um, One of the things that we're a little bit concerned about is that Sweden are now actually qualified they're going to win the group and so they're home and hosed and so there is some fear that maybe they might not try a leg against Finland in the last game I know Vera Pau was certainly concerned about a Scandinavian uh, friendship axis of whatever uh, when the fixtures were being made is this is this a real worry or would we expect Sweden to still be able to at least get a draw against Finland almost no matter who they put out Um. 
I mean, it's always a concern. Like they definitely won't have that edge, you know, that they had last night, for example, because they were worried about not qualifying last night. Um, but I don't think so. I don't think we need to worry about it. The Swedes, they like to win. They like to show off. They like to, to prove how good they are to everyone. So the Finland game won't be any different. They're going to want to, you know, put on a show. And um, I don't know if you've, see, you've seen their advert, have you? Yeah, the jersey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that kind of shows their their temperament and, you know, you won't be able to beat us no matter what. And, and it's been true to this, you know, they haven't been beaten. Um, they've only been scored on against uh, twice, and that's from Ireland last night and from Finland. So, you know, they're a really difficult team to beat, and uh, they're going to want to prove, you know, last night was a bit of a dent for them, so they'll they'll come out of the, the box, you know, charging for sure. I, I, I don't know if you saw the Ireland ad. So Sky, Sky have a, an Ireland ad. It's all around the, the outbelieved, and they showed the team the ad and the, the team apparently were like oh this is class you know and, and emotional around it in your in your opinion do you think the team also saw the Sweden ad and were also maybe similarly inspired in the opposite direction going what, what is this what are the what are the Swedes tell us about their jersey yeah absolutely I mean it's a small world somebody would have mentioned it to them they would have had a look and um Dave uh, from FM Today told me last night I hadn't seen it and I watched it last night and I was livid I was like oh my god I'm furious like this would really annoy me probably to a disadvantage if I was playing to be quite honest but uh, yeah the girls would have seen that and that would have you know really wound them up you could see that the girls had fire in their belly last night and I wouldn't be surprised if, if that added to it along with um, our Sky advert as well which is really inspirational um, one thing that's not so inspirational is Kenny Shields' comments. I don't know if you've seen or heard this yet, but we can actually play it for anybody who hasn't seen them. So this is Kenny Shields, the Northern Ireland manager, beaten 5-0 last night by England, and here he is explaining why they conceded goals so quickly. I thought they were struggling a wee bit at times to open us up until the psychology of going two up. Uh, in the women's game, you'll have noticed... I'm sure you will. If you go through the patterns, when a team concedes a goal, they concede a second one within a very short period of time. Right through the whole lot, the whole spectrum of the women's game, because girls and women are more emotional than men, so they take a goal gun in, they, they don't take that very well. So if you watch, you go through the stats, which journalists love to do going through stats and you'll see teams conceding goals in 18 and 21 minutes and then in 64 and 68 minutes they group them because that's an emotional goal so we conceded in 48 we should be 3 and uh, 7 minutes was it or 3 and 9 on in, in Friday and we were conscious of that when we went 1-0 down we killed the game tried to just slow it right down because to give them time to get that emotional imbalance out of their head and and that's a that's an issue we have not just Northern Ireland but all the countries of that problem That's Kenny Shields there Emma what do you make of that? 
Um, I think it's ridiculous, really, um, to say that <laughs> we concede um, consecutive goals because we're emotional on the pitch. That's, I think that's a load of crap, to be quite honest. I'm speaking personally. Uh, if we conceded a goal, actually, I was more determined to get it right and, and to get possession back. And I wasn't... Uh, emotional about the goal so to speak yeah I was emotional but about getting myself back in the game or getting our team back in the game and I think I was a I don't agree with them basically I don't agree with them and it's like in football in general after you can see the goal the next few minutes are, are very important whether you're a man woman dog whatever um, it's really important because the other team are elated they're confident they feel stronger and you have to try and get the balance back from that but it's not about being emotional it's about the flow of the game and, and the balance of the game uh, It's idiotic stuff really it's like complete misunderstanding <laughs> of cause and effect uh, at a basic level but I do wonder what his team are thinking, they're preparing to go to the Euros and the next time they go training they're all looking at the manager going well you just think that I'm going to get emotional whenever anything happens on the field here so you don't actually trust me to be a, a footballer Yeah no I I mean, that comment is, um, it, it would get you the sack, really. And I'd be surprised if he is the manager for the next game, to be honest, because you can't discriminate like that. And it's the one thing we don't need in women's football when it's on a momentum of, you know, trajectory is crazy. And for, for him to say that is just ridiculous. But the point is, he's thought about it a lot. It wasn't, a, um, you know, a throwaway comment. He's obviously thought about it. He's studied it. And because he has seen that maybe there is a lot of games that teams have conceded um, two goals in the short space of time, he's decided to put it down to a fact of, of, you know, it must be emotions for women. It must be. What else can it be? It was just absolutely ridiculous. It's just so silly. And um, I'm, I know a couple of those girls and I know they won't be happy with that. So I'll be interested to see how that um, carries on but I hope he doesn't speak like that I mean more concerning for me that the tone of his voice I was like yeah you know if he was in the dressing room talking like that I'd be like I'd need a little bit of a, an extra warm up to get me going again <laughs> Emma always great to have you on thanks Millie for joining us cheers thanks a lot cheers it's, thanks uh, Emma Byrne with 134 caps for the Republic of Ireland uh, during her career as a goalkeeper with Arsenal and of course Champions League winner in her time as well 12 minutes past 9 here on OTBAM if you want to get in touch 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream you can tweet us at OffTheBallAM OTBAM of course is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day I want you to keep an eye out in the ad break for a clip from episode 12 of the Football Pod which is available to listen to right now in the Football Pod podcast feed or in OTBGA, you can subscribe to get a new episode every Tuesday from 6 o'clock. And you'll see the reaction from Paddy, James and Tommy to the breaking news of Rian O'Neill's successful appeal of his red card, which is actually a massive game changer and potentially a season-shifting moment when it comes to the Gaelic Football Championship. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to tell you what's coming up on OTB Sports Radio today. OTB Gold is Joe meeting Gerlach Nan. At 1 o'clock, Coy Gig is former Ireland manager Sue Ronan. Our retro panel is dealing with disappointment and OTB Gold is inside Harrington's gaff. Andy Friend is up next. OTB AM. So a brilliant atmospheric game in the showgrounds last Friday night. We'll see Leinster take a five-point lead over Connacht into the Good Friday second leg of the Heineken Champions Cup quarterfinal. I'm delighted to say the Connacht coach Andy Friend is with us. Andy, I'm always wondering how you feel after a game like that. Um, 
uh, I was particularly struck by Shane Lowry's comments after the Masters where we were all going, well, oh, geez, Shane Lowry just finished third in the Masters. He's like, how many opportunities am I going to get to win these games? So there's like joy about the being involved in such an amazing spectacle and occasion and also this nagging, just disappointment that the game was there for you. Yeah, that was exactly how it was, Joe. We had a, a change room that was pretty sombre, to be honest with you. Um, uh, th- yeah, the immediate thought was... Uh, a game that we could have won and and we had our chances to win, but but we didn't take it. Um, you know, when you when you go back through it, you go, well, I'm very proud of the effort that went in there, and I think the boys would have been very proud of their effort. But you know, we don't play this sport to come second; you play it to win. And um, and when you don't win, there is that feeling that you that you haven't done enough and you missed a trick. So that, that's pretty much how we felt, mate. Bundy was in the. Um on the pitch in the huddle afterwards and very very animated about it and I, I don't know what he was saying but I, I suspect the message is like this is not over here uh, what, what, what was your message and how do you get that messaging right to make sure that you're giving everybody the confidence that they can go and create an upset next week but also that there's just a little bit of work that needs to be done yeah and and that's exactly been the messaging the messaging is listen we um, we're very much still in the fight um, when we kick off on, on Friday night it's 5 nil to to, to Leinster, um, so it's a it's a very digestible uh, chunk that we have to overcome. It's one converter try, um, but we know if we converted a few more of those opportunities that we created, and if we, uh, like in my view, we we opened up two really easy holes for them um, to score fourteen of their points. So we're better in those two areas than that that five point gap that sits there uh, is definitely achievable for us. So. That's what the focus has been on. It, it's, it's all about what we need to do and how we need to be better. And um, let's hope we see that on Friday night. How, how do you feel about the season at the moment? Because it's been a bit of a roller coaster. There's been some absolutely outstanding performances and there have been occasions where the team didn't perform and, and didn't show up in, in sections of games and even over full games at, at various stages too. So when you're thinking back and rationalising what's gone on, what's your understanding of why the season has been the way it has been for Connacht? It's a good question. We, um, we we definitely we've been consistent in being inconsistent. That's that's the way we've been. And, and so your summary there is very apt. Um, some some great stuff, some not so good stuff. Uh, and I think listen, as a group, um, and, and this is also one of the messages. Our preparation leading into that game last week was the best I've seen from the playing group, coaching group, from everybody um, in terms of the detail that went in, the time that was spent. On, on analysing opposition and all of that's therefore controllable, but um, that's not the way that that uh, you know that that's not a habit for for some of our players, and um, that needs to change. You know, the reason Leinster are so good, in my view, is that they have a, a squad that if you're not doing your detail and getting your detail right, you're not going to get opportunities. And I believe we are starting to build that squad where the pressure's coming on the players to realise. You may get one pop, and if, and if you're not good enough at it because you haven't done your detail, it's not going to work for you. You can sit at the back of the queue again. Um, so that penny's starting to drop, I believe. So, uh, yeah, it, it's been a year where I think um, we've done some really good things. We've had some enormous growth, but we've also reverted back to you know some of some of our, our greatest failings where we just don't turn up on games, and that's unacceptable as a, as a pro footy team, unacceptable um, from all of us, and I said I sit at the top of that. So that's something that we need to we need to get right uh, as we as we try and finish the season off and heading to next year. 
I know listening to you over the last couple of years and speaking to you at various stages as we've gone along, you've never once reached for excuses. It's always been to explain and it's about a, a building process. But it does feel like of all of the provinces, whenever your players become successful and go to join the Ireland camp, you just don't have the strength and depth yet that some of the other provinces have to be able to deal with that. So you are victims of your own success. Uh, the more successful, the better your players get, the better they play, the more of them play for Ireland. And at the moment, you just don't have the replacement level who can step in and it be seamless. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's something we're, we're continually trying to build. Um, I think the other hard thing, mate, it's been these last two years, if you haven't been in a 23, um, you know, a starting uh, or a squad 23, you haven't been playing rugby. So we got a chunk of players that they just need footy. One of the reasons they come here is because um, they haven't been accepted somewhere else. A lot of them, some of them are our homegrown boys that have come through academies. But you, the only way you get better as a rugby player is to play rugby at, at the next level. And because of COVID and all the reasons that we all know, we just haven't had that second tier coming through. So for a province that doesn't have a great deal of depth and needs games to, to give players opportunity, we've really uh, we've suffered with that. But at the same time, it's put a greater emphasis on our training. And I do believe our training's got much, much better, you know, really good intensity within our sessions now. You can't go full contact, so you miss that that final bit of the game. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're, we're building nicely to, to, to set it up really well for next year and years to come. But we're definitely not there yet. I also, I think it's kind of sometimes underrated in terms of significant changes to your backroom team. This is the first year of that group betting in as a, a management team. And you are also already clearly recruiting in a, in a particular type of player that's coming through as well. Players with stuff to prove, people who do want opportunities, people who do want game time as well. Like it, You can see that there's like a, a medium-term plan in all of the thinking. When do you believe that you come to fruition with all that kind of stuff? I, I, you know, Obviously, next Friday, hopefully, from your perspective. But in the, in the medium term, when do you feel like, OK, this is a, a, a playing group now who are going to be playing in the style that the management team wants them to do and that uh, gives the full expression of what the Connacht identity is supposed to be? Well, I think we're going to be better again next year. Um, but, but again, I, I don't think you ever reach the pinnacle because there's always another mountain to climb, isn't there? So um, I, I do believe, uh, yeah, as you, as you, again, you explained it really well there, mate, that we, we have got a new backroom staff. Um, I, I think they've done a, a tremendous job in their first year. It's been tough and it is tough when you come into the professional environment. Um, yeah, we've got... Uh, two brand new coaches, rookie coaches in, in Colin Tucker and, and in Mossy Lawler, um, but they've done incredible things with with Cully with the defence and Mossy with with some of our launch stuff. And I know, you know, some of the the, the, the games we've played, we've we've leaked big points. But um, I keep saying it's it's not a system thing. That it's that's down to some individual errors there where we need to be better, and and that's also getting coached. Some of our launch stuff has been the best we've seen. Pete Wilkins has moved into a, a new senior attack role. I think he's done a, an amazing job in in, in um, widening his breadth, which was previously just defence, to now into attack and defence and overall game management and, and preparation. And Diavolt Seneca has come in and I think has really stabilised um, some areas that we were leaking and creaking before. So this first year, will it's been a year of embedding. Next year, we'll, we'll be better again. Will we reach the pinnacle next year? No, because I think we'll be better next year, but there's going to be another year after that and so on and so forth. So, um, and as you say, our, our selection motto, our recruitment motto is 
to find the rough diamond and try and polish him up. That's what we've got to do. And, and sometimes we get that right and sometimes we don't. Um, but that's the that's the model that we work with as well as trying to bring through our homegrown players. So, I, listen, I believe let, let's wait to see what happens on Friday night. We've got enormous energy to, to get up to the Aviva and, and try and turn around that five-point gap. Um, we then go to South Africa. Uh, it's going to be a, a struggle for us now to, to reach the quarterfinals with the way our season's gone, but we own that. No one else does. Um, and if that doesn't, if we don't, you know, that, that doesn't come to fruition, then it's all eyes on next year for us. We've got a, a new 4G pitch going to be put in here at the sports ground next year. So that allows us to get into our game style of being fast, relentless, adaptable even more. So I see another, another step being made next year with a coaching team that's been around for a second year and a new group of players. So I'm, I'm excited and positive about the future. Are there many more players to come in an ideal world in terms of recruitment or is your recruitment largely done for next season? Virtually, virtually done, mate. We're looking probably for one more, um, but uh, we've got to find the right person. So um, at the moment, uh, yeah, we're about 95% done. And when you're selling the Connacht Dream at the moment, uh, are you pointing to Mac Hansen and going, hey, look, you know, this, uh, anything is possible here. You can have the world at your feet in the space of 12 months. Yeah, and listen, Mac, Mac's turned all spotlights towards him, hasn't he? Which he's been brilliant, mate. But but that's exactly it. You know, we've we got, as we now know, we've got a, a young fella called Byron Ralston coming over next year now. Um, I'm excited for Byron. There's another part of me I, I sort of feel for the bloke because he's another Aussie coming over here with Irish heritage. And, and the assumption is going to be he's going to be another Mac Hansen. Now, he may well be another Mac Hansen. And if he is, fantastic. But um, he can definitely look at what Mac's done and take enormous courage and and and, and um, belief in that, that going to this, you know, the west of Ireland and, and playing his trade there could well launch a, an international career for him. Um, he may not be on the same time trajectory, but he may well get there. But, you know, we've got the likes of, of, um, of Byron coming in. We've got Shane Bolton, who... As we know, we signed last year. Um, this has been his first year. He's only a young man, hasn't had a lot of opportunity this year, but there's a lot to like about what he's going to do. But, yeah, you know, the, the Mac Hansen story to me is, um, is a dream come true and, and just it points to what what opportunities lie out there if you're prepared to, to be brave enough to make a move and to, and to back yourself and go and play the, the, the footy you can play. Does it have a knock-on impact as well on the existing squad as well when you see somebody who's one of your teammates who you're going up against every day in training who steps straight into the Six Nations arena and not just acquits himself well, but acquits himself spectacularly well for somebody who doesn't have the requisite 2025 caps to acclimatise to international rugby, that his, his own teammates, some of the academy players, some of the players who've been there who maybe haven't hit their peak just yet are going, actually, you know what, if I do hit my peak, I don't need to go somewhere else to realise my international ambitions. Yeah, correct. You know, and, and blokes also then look at Mac and say, well, what's he doing? What's he doing different? And we're all different. We're all different as humans. But one of the things you get with Mac Hansen is, you know, he's, he's, very, um, he's very measured in his approach. He's, he's a laid-back fella. Um, you know, he likes a good time, but he also likes to be serious when he wants to be serious. So that can rub off on other blokes too because you're always trying to pitch yourself against what success looks like. Now, Bundy and Mac Hansen are two very different people. Finlay Bealham's a different person. Again, Jack Carty's a different person. So you'll pick up little bits from all of them if you're a young, astute player watching what they do and it's trying to capture the the best out of everybody and, and then be yourself as well, um, which hopefully will make everybody within the squad a little bit better. So, yeah, I mean, everyone wants the Mac Hansen stories. Um, Mac's been... 
brilliant in, in coming over here and seizing that opportunity. And, and he's an absolute joy to watch play. Uh, he's an absolute joy to work with as a, as a rugby player. And, and he's just a good bloke to have around the team too. So um, we've rolled double six with that one. Can I just ask you a little bit about preparation for Leinster? Are they a different animal in the Heineken Cup from the uh, URC? Did you see different things from them last week that you hadn't seen before? Or were they actually just exactly what you expected? I think every team's got their own identity and, and so the identity which we saw on Friday night was, was pretty much what we'd seen. Um, you know, the, the quality of player that um, that they can roll out on a Heineken Cup night um, is, you know, is, is very impressive. So uh, the bodies were a little bit bigger, the hits were a little bit harder, set piece was a little bit tougher, all of those things. But the game style that they play, um, you know, a little bit more clinical in certain areas. You've got a James Lowe with a left boot kicking it. 50 metres every time his boot touches the ball. You know, that, that sort of stuff you might not see um, or we didn't see in, in previous Leinster uh, games. But we know we're going to get that and more on Friday night because we've, we've poked the bear a touch. But it's not really about what Leinster are going to do. It's about us seizing our opportunities and, and, uh, and us being better again than what we showed on Friday night. And, you know, if we can just focus on us, I think you, you can get yourself caught if, you, if you're worried too much about the opposition and what they're going to throw at you takes your eye off your own game. So for us this week, it's about us being even more clinical than we were on Friday and in, in, on both sides of the ball. And if we can do that, we think we can we can sneak it. You've, you've obviously played at the Viva already this season. Um, is that important? Is that was that? I mean, I don't know if you automatically thought, well, there might be a, a leg for us in the quarterfinals at some stage later on in the year, but um, uh, might just have been a good decision at the time as well. Your players seem to enjoy playing there anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's a bigger pitch. Um, it's a, you know, you don't get the wind you get here. Uh, we had a beautiful night on Friday night too. Um, you know, so it, it, there was no conditions really to worry about. Uh, we've had some real success up there at the Viva and, and given the performance we put out on Friday night, we now know there's going to be a, a chunk of Connacht supporters up there too. So the majority will probably be Leinster, but there'll be a, you know, a good smattering of Connacht supporters and, and uh, we've had some happy times there. And let's hope Friday night's another one. Last question. Uh, one of our, our listeners on YouTube wants to know: What do you make of the the uh, two legged situation? I don't mind it, mate. I think it's um, yeah. You look across the board at the, the top sixteen over the last sixteen now, and most games are still very much alive. So uh, it adds another flavour, doesn't it? I, I, I'm actually um, I, I wonder whether they shouldn't start the scoreboard with what what the aggregate difference is when you kick off. That that'd be pretty cool too, I reckon, just to keep everyone. Uh, aware of what the what the scoreline is, it might be uh, it might hurt you if you're a Bordeaux, for example, where Lower Shell have got a fair few points on them at the minute. But um, I quite like it. I think it's a, a neat system, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll love it even more if we can if we can go one better on Friday. Well, listen, Andy, we wish you the very best of luck. You're doing a great job. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Good man, thank you. It's Sandy Friend there, the Connor coach ahead of the game against Leinster this Friday, which uh, you will be able to hear. On uh, off the ball, we also be bringing you the Munster Exeter game on Saturday. OTBM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're talking Champions League tomorrow. Kilkenny legend Tommy Walsh will join us. Alan Quinn and we'll preview the Champions Cup last sixteen second legs. And Irish MMA star Will Flory will be live in studio as well. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.